Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be talking about the militarization of everything with Rosa Brooks. She worked at the Pentagon in the heart of darkness. Now she's a professor at Georgetown University. Also, we're still thinking about the 60s, and so is Calvin Trillin. He went to Mississippi in 1964 as a young journalist, and in the decades since, he's written a lot about race in America. First up today, it's time for Trump Talk. Today our topic is the woman behind Trump. We're talking, of course, about Ivanka, his number one daughter. Trump, we are told, relies on her for political advice and listens to her more than the professionals who are officially his campaign managers. But exactly who is she and how did she get to be so powerful? She's barely a Republican. For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. She's a frequent guest here, a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She's also the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, Politico, and lots more. She won the National Book Critics Circle Award for her most recent book about Haiti. It's called Farewell, Fred Voodoo. And she also teaches in the literary journalism program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Hi, John. There's a huge industry behind political campaigns in America. Managers, strategists, pollsters, opposition researchers, data crunchers, media buyers, policy advisors, fundraising gurus. And then there's the campaign to make America great again. Yeah, sort of not so much for that campaign. James Carville said in a recent article by Lizzie Whittacombe in The New Yorker, he said, the Trump campaign is not a bad campaign. It's not a messed up campaign. It's not a dysfunctional campaign. There is no campaign. <laughs> he said he also added in a kind of self-reflection, not that common to James Carville. He said, everybody that's done this for a living and got paid to do it is like, oh, my gosh, suppose this works. We're all rendered useless. He will have destroyed an entire profession. <laughs> <laughs> And what was it that Trump himself said when he was asked about appointing women to his cabinet? He was kind of stunned, like, oh, that's an idea I hadn't had before. And then uh, he said, oh, I guess Ivanka, she came to mind. So shouldn't we give Trump credit for giving a woman so much power in his campaign. His campaign is the most important thing he's ever done. It's really the most important thing in America right now. And Ivanka is the person he relies on the most. Well, yeah. I mean, we should give him credit for uh, respecting his daughter's abilities, definitely. But of course, she's mini-me. There's that aspect of the narcissistic personality in choosing your offspring as your closest advisor. And 
I think it's less about Ivanka being a female than about Ivanka being baby Trump. Yeah. In Ivanka's speech at the convention, which was the highlight of the convention for a lot of us, she said, quote, I do not consider myself categorically Republican or Democrat. What does that say to you? She is just like him. He's neither Democrat nor Republican, although he happens to be the Republican candidate for the presidency of the United States. And she goes with whatever seems most appealing to her in any ideology. So that, of course, she's going to feel a lot about women's issues because they affect her. And that's what she made her speech about. Would you say Ivanka is a feminist? You can't say Ivanka's a feminist. If you look at the public image of Ivanka, it's a kind of conservative, sleek, chic brand of feminism. It's It's a way of framing feminism to be an unthreatening, objectified thing instead of an active, meaningful thing. So if you look at her website, IvankaTrump.com, you can see what she thinks of as the working woman. So it's called Women Who Work. That's the hashtag for her movement. So women who work are not just women who work. Like, they're not working in the public defender's office, and they're not working in the municipal hall in some small town. These are big city women with who, you know, who start as associates at law firms or Goldman Sachs with $180,000 when they're 22. And that is the brand of, of woman you're looking at. And I don't mean to say that such women can't be feminist or are not feminist, but the way that they are shown to IvankaTrump.com viewers is not individual, is not free. It's really more like uh, supermodels posing at desks. Well, one striking thing about Ivanka is that she has been best friends with Chelsea Clinton. They're almost the same age. They both live in nice Manhattan buildings. Each has uh, little kids. Each is married to a, a rich guy. What do you make of that friendship between uh, Ivanka and Chelsea? Well, first of all, rich people tend to gather together for various reasons. One, if they're all from the same town, they're going to know each other. Chelsea did a lot of growing up in New York when her mother was senator. So they'll know each other, they'll be in the same circles, and they fear outsiders because they're rich and they don't understand other people's motives. They worry about other people's motives. But if you're equally rich, you're not trying to get their money away from them. So that is the primary reason why rich kids become friends with rich kids. And then I think they see themselves as reflecting off each other. They're kind of mirror images of each other, although you have to admit, and this may be shallow of me to say, that Chelsea and Mark are the less good-looking couple. (laughs) (laughs) But they think of themselves as basically the same scions of great political families or great influential families, since the Trumps aren't really political. Well, it's kind of amazing that Ivanka, growing up as the daughter of Donald Trump, turned out okay, actually very effective and successful person in the real world. The New Yorker tells a story about her growing up when her father was breaking up with her mother and taking up with Marla Maples when Ivanka was nine years old. Tell us that story. So on the cover of the New York Post, there was a photograph of Marla Maples, the new girlfriend, and 
she was quoted as saying, that was the best sex I ever had. And so reporters chased down Ivanka, nine years old, at her school and tried to get her to comment on this. I think that changed her attitude, certainly, toward the media. She has said so, actually. It seems like after that, you would never trust the media and you would be very guarded in everything you said. And indeed she is. And uh, she, unlike her dad, she's always on message. She's very careful. But, you know, I was thinking about what you said about how she's really successful in the world and it's pretty amazing and having suffered through what I think of as that's a pretty big trauma for a kid to be out in public like that about her father's relationship. And it's not really their fault. But I, I don't know if we can say that she's really successful. She has the appearance of really successful, sort of like her dad, who got so much money from his dad. She's worked inside her father's house for her entire career, basically. So how do we know what successful means in a situation like that, where everything is given to you and all praise that's lavished on you is lavished by your dad, and he's the one who declares you're successful? She does have success as a celebrity. She's been on the covers of many magazines. And what does celebrity mean, do you think, for Ivanka? Well, one thing I really like about Ivanka is she's she's very honest about uh, why she does things. And what she said about celebrity is that its value is in branding. Hmm. And that seems to me to be true, not just for Ivanka Trump, but for a lot of celebrities now. We used to say, well, oh, look, that person is just famous for being famous. But now that's what people do so that they can then have a handbag line or a perfume line with their name on it. Like Paris Hilton, she was the first. And so that's what Ivanka Trump does. She gets out there. She is in the public eye. She poses for very sexy spreads in GQ and Maxim, the Laddie magazine, and becomes more and more a known quantity so that she doesn't just have to put Trump on what she sells, she can put Ivanka Trump on what she sells. She's breaking away. (laughs) There's that great story about how when she was 14 and someone opened a store called Ivanka's. (laughs) You want to tell that story? Yeah, this is also from the really great New Yorker piece that everybody should read. Someone called the office and got Ivanka. She was like visiting her dad. And they explained who they were. They were a person who had a business on a, like, Highway 35 in New Jersey, and a, a store had opened up two doors down called Ivanka with a, a an exclamation point. And she began to understand what the guy was saying. She said, I told my father we should copyright my name. <laughs> 14 years old. 14. In high school, she went to Choate and worked as a high school student as a model for Versace, for Tommy Hilfiger. She was on the cover of Seventeen. To me, I would say that's not a good thing for a high school girl to be doing, but you're from New York. Maybe you have a different way of thinking about this. You know, as a parent, I probably wouldn't want my daughter to do that, but I only have sons, so I can't really speak to the issue. But it seems to me it takes a lot of your time away from concentrating on your studies. Um, But maybe that's not what it was about. And uh, it seems to me also this was a child who didn't need money. So she didn't need to model. A lot of models, if you go into their backgrounds, you will find that they're recent immigrants like Melania Trump, Mm -hmm. that they uh, are beautiful girls who had to work really hard to get where they are. Uh, Ivanka, of course, is very pretty. And naturally, she would be a model. But she didn't need to be a model. So 
I think she was just early branding. You know, I think we should say that Ivanka at least claims to have a career working in her father's real estate empire. She is executive vice president of development and acquisitions at the Trump organization. She has a big office in the Trump Tower. She's worked, she says in these magazine stories, on Trump projects like renovating the old post office in Washington, D.C., and the Doral Hotel in Miami Beach. I think you've looked at some of these articles. Yeah, and she, you know, she flies to Dubai for her father's Trump projects out there. I think that she is a very influential person in his organization. This doesn't surprise me. It's, you know, Trump and daughter. And also the two boys are in there, too. I think they're not as important to Trump, but they're probably not quite as mini-me-ish as she is in spite of the difference in the look between her and her father. So it doesn't surprise me. So many New York real estate families are like this. The family, family business. Family business. One last thing about Ivanka, the most powerful woman in Donald Trump's life and certainly the most powerful person in the Trump campaign for president. Where are politics in her life? Has she ever been what we would call a political person? No, and neither has her father, who's the Republican candidate for president. So that's not so surprising either. I think she cares about issues that affect her and her friends. And now, because she's in the public view, she probably has extended that caring a little bit downward toward more normal working mothers, too. But I don't think politics has been a big deal, except insofar as she knows Chelsea Clinton, for whom politics has always been a big deal and who actually is quite savvy about political doings. And it's interesting that she's no longer in ads for Versace, But she is in the supermarket tabloids. Yeah, supermarket tabloids. Of course, that's the best place to be if you want to walk this line between being uh, a celebrity with branding and a celebrity with politics. Because what it means is when you start running for office, if the supermarket tabs are on your side, which they always have been with Trump because he's great copy and because he's conservative, then You're like a figure in their family, the people who go to the supermarket. You know, they see you every day, almost every day, certainly every week. They know what you're doing, they think. And you're a known quantity who they love, the way people love celebrities. Amy Willens, our expert on the Trump family. Thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. Now it's time to talk about the militarization of everything. For that story, we turn to Rosa Brooks. She's a law professor at Georgetown University and a senior fellow at New America and a columnist for Foreign Policy magazine. She's also worked as counselor to the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, and she's been a senior advisor to the State Department and a consultant for Human Rights Watch. Here in L.A., we remember her as a weekly op-ed columnist for the L.A. Times. And now she's written a book, How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything, Tales from the Pentagon. Rosa Brooks, welcome. Thanks, John. Good to be here. You worked at the Pentagon, the heart of darkness. You call it a, quote, vast bureaucratic death-dealing enterprise, close quote. You got an award for your work at the Pentagon. What exactly was your job there? What does this title mean? And what did you learn about the sense of purpose at that gigantic institution? 
Well, I don't know quite what I got the award for, <laughs> for being a, a good employee and doing my job. But no, I, I had a, I had one of those portfolios that portfolios that, that evolved as I went along. I, I came in, uh, I was hired by Michelle Flournoy, who was the undersecretary for policy. And when I came in, no one had any idea what I should do. I was sort of the generalist in a, in a building full of specialists. So I started out doing things ranging from writing her speeches and congressional testimony to gradually, because of my own background in, in human rights, um, sort of soaking up everything human rights related uh, that other people brought to us and, and eventually starting starting an office within the Pentagon that looked at human rights and rule of law and humanitarian policy issues. And one of the most fascinating things uh, in, in your book is that you discovered that the Pentagon is not just a death-dealing enterprise. It does a lot of other things. It does pretty much everything, in fact. Um, that was one of the most amazing <laughs> discoveries was that any issue you can think of, whether it's a public health issue, an economic development issue, anything, someone in the Pentagon or the Defense Department is, is working on it. Uh, the Pentagon uh, was involved in planning programs designed to reduce sexual violence by Congolese military forces. It designs anti-trafficking programs in the Pacific, uh, soap operas for Iraqi audiences, um, micro-enterprise programs for Afghan women, uh, training parliamentarians and judges. You name it, somebody in the Pentagon is working on it. There's, there's sort of almost nothing that the U.S. military sort of doesn't have a, a, a toe or a finger in. Is there anything wrong with having the military help Afghan women? No, not in the abstract, not necessarily. I mean, I think that, I think that what gets complicated, several, several things start creating problems, right? One is that the military isn't necessarily any good at it. It's not necessarily the skills that military people are trained in, right? So sometimes they screw it up. It may not be their fault. They're doing their best to do something that they didn't necessarily ask to have handed to them as an assignment, but they may still screw it up, and that's not necessarily good. The other problem, I think it is, it's sort of part of this vicious circle where the more we ask the military to do, the more we flow resources and authorities over to the military uh, which leaves less to go around for the State Department, USAID, and the traditional civilian foreign policy agencies. The less there is for them, the less they can do. Their own capabilities dwindle, which means that they can't take on the tasks that we'd like them to take on, which means we give those tasks to the military, which means the cycle just repeats itself. So it's part of the sort of the gradual dismantling and uh, reducing to irrelevance of the civilian agencies. How do you explain the fact that the Pentagon has taken on so many of these tasks instead of the State Department? Part of it is that they're big and they're there. Um, they've got people, they've got money. It's, it's, it's frequently said, and it is true, that there are more members of military marching bands than there are foreign service officers uh, <laughs> for the United States. And um, the military, it's like Walmart, right? It's, it's open 24-7. It can do things cheaply and efficiently. It may not do them in the best, most highest quality way, but it can do them cheaply and efficiently. Uh, the military can tell thousands upon thousands of people to go off to a very unpleasant place and work in difficult and dangerous conditions, and they can't say no. They'll go. Uh, there's no other part of the U.S. government that can do that, and that becomes really, really tempting for both the White House and Congress to constantly be saying 
we want this to get done. There aren't enough people at the State Department, so military, you go figure it out. I believe there's also a difference in the budget of the Pentagon and the State Department. Just a little, just a little difference. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, the, the budget of the Defense Department uh, is uh, more than 10 times higher than the budget of the State Department. And it is amazing how difficult it is to change that. And one of the many mind-blowing things for me when I was at the Pentagon, every year, as you know, the, the administration submits its budgets to Congress and Congress sort of marks them up and sends them back. And so the Defense Department submits its budget request and it comes back and the Secretary of Defense writes a letter back to the relevant congressional committees after the budget markup. It's, it's referred to colloquially in the, in the Pentagon as the heartburn letter. It's sort of a letter of, you know, we asked for such and such and then this is what you gave us back and this is what I'm really unhappy about and want you to reconsider. And I would have assumed going into this process that it would mostly take the form of the Secretary of Defense saying, you know, we asked for 100x and you only gave us 80. We want 100. You gave us too little. Give us what we asked for. In fact, I remember in 2009 or 10, the letter had, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 bullet pointed items that the Secretary of Defense was really unhappy about. Uh, and almost all of them, literally like 12 or so out of 14, were not issues where he was saying, we asked for this and you gave us too little, but they were issues where he was saying, we told you we didn't want this money for this program, or we didn't want this weapon system. We don't want that base because it's useless. It's inefficient. It's, we don't need that money. We don't want that program. Take it away. And you're trying to ram it down our throats. <laughs> you know, you can't get rid of this stuff. Even when the secretary of defense is saying, we don't want it. Congress still wants to fund it. And, and, you know, this is the sad reality is that you know, every member of Congress has a military base or a defense contractor in their district. There are no factories manufacturing disaster relief experts or foreign, foreign service officers in anybody's constituency. One of the big arguments of your book takes up the question of where we draw the line between war and peace. It was only a couple of decades ago that this wasn't even a question. You point out that today it's become much more problematic. I think that's right. I, I think that to oversimplify a little bit until until a few decades ago, when we thought about potential security threats to the United States, we, we thought in terms of foreign states and armed conflicts with foreign states militaries. And today, increasingly, just because of technological changes, globalization changes everybody is familiar with, individuals and small groups who may be totally disconnected from any state, who may be operating across borders, multiple different nationalities, have the ability to pose challenges and threats to states on a scale that we once would have associated only with states and their militaries. And as that happens, as we begin to have these sort of threats that don't look like traditional armed conflict, but they don't, they look on a scale that is so different from ordinary crime that they, they do seem like you can't just put them in that category. It really challenges our ability to make sense of, is this, are these threats part of war? Or are they part of something else? What's the right institution to deal with them? What's the right legal framework for dealing with them? And of course, the difference between war and peace is tremendously important in that in peacetime, if for, just for example, if you kill another human being, you'll be punished for committing a crime. In wartime, if you refuse to kill the enemy, you will be punished for a crime. 
Yeah, no, that that's absolutely right. And 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 so when we decide that we're going to look at say cyber threats through the framework of war uh, rather than through the framework of crime or through a regulatory framework. Once we decide we're going to look at it through a legal framework of war and armed conflict, well, then you get to do all kinds of things that you otherwise don't get to do up to and including responding to cyber attacks with actual military force, bombs, guns, etc. And when you're in the world of the law of armed conflict, the law tolerates much, much greater violence, coercion, secrecy, uh, lack of accountability than when you're in the ordinary peacetime legal world. And so the more we get these kind of murky in-between things from, you know, transnational terror networks of non-state actors to, to cyber threats and so forth, the more we put them in that war framework, the more we kind of disappear lots of activities into this uh, area where, where secrecy is tolerated and violence is tolerated with far fewer checks and balances. You're an expert on the law of war, and one of the most important parts of the law of war, accepted for a century, is the obligation to protect non-combatants. Your side is required not to attack civilians, to distinguish between civilians and military forces, and you have an, you have an obligation to protect non-combatants uh, where do we stand today on the ability to protect non-combatants? <laughs> it's getting harder and harder, in part because, you know, it's very easy to identify a combatant if they are kind enough to wear a military uniform and carry a little card that identifies their rank in a particular army. But but when you're when you're looking at threats like transnational terrorism, we no longer really have any coherent basis for deciding who counts as a civilian, who counts as a combatant, what counts as an armed conflict, what counts as something else, transnational organized crime, for instance, or crimes against humanity. You know, we, we basically have no idea. And I think what has been happening since, since September 11, for 15 years now in this country, has been that we have tended, when in doubt, to decide that there's an armed conflict and that the people who we don't like or who we think are doing something bad and nefarious to call them combatants. Once we do that, uh, we can kill them without due process, without any judicial review, without necessarily acknowledging our role in it. And that's something, obviously, that legally speaking, both from a, an international law perspective and an American law perspective, we couldn't do if we if we didn't decide to sort of adopt that war framework. And, and I think it's, you know, I, I think it's, it's genuinely a puzzling problem. You know, how do you make, we've got these categories, you know, war, peace, military, civilian, foreign, domestic, public, private, which today are harder and harder to apply in any coherent matter, in any coherent matter whatsoever. Uh, so it, it's easy to protect civilians when you know who the civilians are, when you have no idea how to define a civilian, you can't protect them. And, and, and you know, I think this really comes out in the uh, response to the Obama administration a few weeks ago, finally releasing some information on civilian casualties resulting from U.S. drone strikes. Uh, and the Obama administration has said many times we, we only strike, we only engage in these strikes when the likelihood of civilian casualties is near zero and they released some data a few weeks ago saying that over over seven or eight years, only about 150 civilians have been killed. And NGOs and journalistic groups immediately said, we think, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of civilians have been killed. And it all comes down to how do you define a civilian? Who gets to make that decision? 
Another part of the new definition of enemy combatants, if we define a person as an enemy combatant, we can kill them or we can take them to Gitmo. You worked on closing Gitmo. You visited Gitmo. And eventually you gave up on closing Gitmo. What what happened? I think the president gave up on closing Gitmo because he decided that the political capital he would have to spend and the price the the political price he would pay for closing it was too high. There there isn't in my opinion there is no legal barrier to closing Gitmo. Congress has certainly not made things easier. But I don't think that Congress has the constitutional ability to prevent the president from closing it tomorrow if he chooses to, uh, from whether he decides to transfer the detainees at Guantanamo now into U.S. facilities or whether he simply decides to let them go somewhere else. I don't think there's any legal barrier to closing it. It's, It's just a matter of political will, and the political will is not there. One last thing. You say that traveling to Gaza, Kosovo, Sierra Leone, and other places, the primary emotion that you felt was shame. Why shame? Oh, shame at being a comfortable American. Shame at being an onlooker at other people's misery. Shame at my inability to do anything that felt useful. You know, shame at the recognition that just by virtue of having been born American, that my life is made easier because other people's lives are are harder. It's, it's hard not to feel a sense of uh, shame for being so lucky when others aren't and shame that there's so little you can do. And I have one other question. The page in your book about the author says, Rosa Brooks is the daughter of left-wing anti-war activists and the wife of a U.S. Army Special Forces officer. Tell us who your parents are. <laughs> well, my mother is Barbara Ehrenreich. She's an author and well-known to many readers of the nation yes. uh, and listeners of your, your podcast. My father's name is John Ehrenreich, and he and my mother have, in fact, written together in the pages of the nation. They, they uh, divorced when I was young, but they still uh, do occasional written work together. And what's it like for a Georgetown law professor to also be an Army wife? <laughs> it has its odd moments. The uh, uh, culture on an American military base is quite different from the culture at American universities. Um, nobody at George, nobody in my classes calls me ma'am, I can tell you that. <laughs> on the other hand, nobody also, nobody refers to me as a senior spouse. Uh, <laughs> or expects me to host uh, coffees and teas for other wives. Rosa Brooks, her new book is How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. Tales from the Pentagon. Rosa, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks so much, John. Now it's time to talk about race in America starting in the 60s. For that, we turn to Calvin Trillin. He's a longtime contributor to the nation, and he works now as the magazine's deadline poet. He's also been a staff writer for The New Yorker since 1963. He's the author of 30 books, including About Alice, Remembering Denny, and Killings. He also writes a lot about eating. Actually, he transformed writing about eating with his book, Alice Let's Eat. And now he has a new book out. It's called Jackson 1964 and Other Dispatches from 50 Years of Reporting on Race in America. We reached him today at home in Manhattan. Calvin Trillin, welcome back. Thank you, John. 
Mississippi 1964. In our world, that means Mississippi Freedom Summer, the SNCC voter registration campaign. That means Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman. Mickey Schwerner, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, the three young civil rights workers who were killed at the beginning of Mississippi Freedom Summer in 1964. I understand your first trip to Mississippi, you you took a bus, a bus from Montgomery. Uh, tell us about riding that bus. The original Freedom Ride got sort of bombed out in Anniston and, and uh, Birmingham, and uh, the Nashville movement uh, people came down from Nashville to take over. I, by coincidence, had gone to Nashville to uh, to do a story about how the Nashville student movement had pretty much integrated the public accommodations of the city, and uh, but I couldn't find anybody. And then I realized they'd gone to Birmingham, so um, it stopped in Birmingham and then got to Montgomery. Um, at that point, we were just following in a car. And um, there was um, uh, a mob at the small mob at the uh, bus station. They were small, but they had clubs, and um, they attacked first the press, and then and then later the Freedom Riders. Um, and it was stalled in, in Montgomery for two or three days. And then Claude Sitton of the New York Times and I, when it finally got started toward uh, Jackson had a conversation in the bus terminal about whether getting on the bus would mean sort of becoming part of the story. And uh, it was sort of the only way to go because there was a police escort and you couldn't have followed very easily. We decided it was a public bus and um, perhaps more important, uh, two or three other reporters had gotten on the bus. So uh, so we bought tickets and we went to, to Jackson. And there were no incidents in, in Mississippi. Mississippi was sort of a place where if the powers that be said there weren't going to be any incidents, that there usually weren't any incidents because it was something close to a police state at that point. Well, that sort of makes you sort of a freedom rider, doesn't it? Well, that's a good question. I uh, uh, I went to, to two freedom rider commemorations on the 50th anniversary to report a story and um, when somebody had a bus, uh, had a book about Freedom Riders, he was going around, somebody was going around with a book asking various Freedom Riders to sign it. And they came to me and I said, oh, no, I wasn't a Freedom Rider, I was just a reporter on the bus. But after a while, I decided, well, probably the distinction is uh, not as great as I had thought. Um, <laughs> certainly, on the other hand, we were... We were treated very um, politely. Uh, the press in uh, in Jackson, the Freedom Riders were arrested very peacefully for something like breaching the peace, something like that. And uh, we were treated very nicely. In fact, given honorary police badges from Jackson, Mississippi, I I seem to have lost mine, but I had it until the last few years. Wow. Well, everybody knows about the Klan, but. Most people don't know about the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission. Your book, Jackson 1964, opens and and closes with some stories about it. Why did Mississippi have a state sovereignty commission in in the 60s, and what what did it do? Well, several states in the South had 
sovereignty commission. Sovereignty, state sovereignty was then a sort of code word for segregation. But most of them were, were not much. Mississippi turned into what I thought of as a sort of a uh, cornpone snozzy. They, uh, they spied on people. They kept voluminous records on citizens. And um, the piece I did about them acknowledges that it was the small matters that I really savor. The, for instance, a woman in Grenada, Mississippi, had a child and it was reported that the child looked black and that there was a possible case of miscegenation. And um, the State Sovereignty Commission sent, sent one of their men out there, visited the baby with the local sheriff. And um, there was, it was hard to tell, they said, and they, they finally started studying the baby's fingernails. There was a theory, no, I wouldn't dignify it exactly as a theory, but a, a belief among some people then that you could tell whether people had black blood in them, as it was said, uh, by either that they had half moons at the cuticles or they didn't. I can't remember uh, which. And when I say I can't remember, it's because I was told this theory uh, in grade school. And many people believed it in grade school, uh, although it was during the war. And we also believed that the Japanese had yellow blood. We yeah. were only six or seven years old. I, I love the picture of these two guys, the inspector from the State Sovereignty Commission and the sheriff, looming over this baby, studying his fingernails. <laughs> and finally, they decided they, they just couldn't tell. And the woman, seeing an opening, said the father was Italian. <laughs> <laughs> Race in Mississippi in 1964. Mississippi, of course, is different today. And you were there a couple of years ago again. Yeah, one of the commemorations of the 50th anniversary of the Freedom Ride was in Mississippi. And uh, a lot has changed. I was wary about going into the uh, newspaper newsroom when, when, when I was there in the 60s. And that newspaper, the Clarion Ledger, has won prizes for exposing civil rights era uh, murder cases that haven't been solved and properly investigated. When I was there in, in, uh, a few years ago, the mayor was black and so was the chief of police. So it, it's changed. It's it still passing the sort of laws that, for instance, try to um, keep people from voting if they're black, uh, supposedly to stop some voting fraud that nobody's quite identified yet. So it, it's, uh, it hasn't turned into paradise for black people. But uh, it's quite a bit different than it was when I was there in the 60s. When In the 60s, it seemed almost like a different country. And um, I used to file my copy, if I could, from depending on the side of the state I was in, either Memphis or New Orleans. And when I got there, I'd call my office and say I slipped over the border. <laughs> well, one of the best things about, about your reporting on race in America, which is collected in this book, Jackson, 1964, is that America's race problem is not just in the South. You reported in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, and, and recently for The New Yorker about Seattle and Long Island and Utah and, and Boston. The Seattle story from 1975, I thought, was especially fascinating. You know, we all know about Mississippi in 1964, but... Nobody remembers what happened in Seattle in 1975, even though it has a lot in common with the news this year. A young black man 
was killed by the police. His name was Joseph Herbert. I wonder if I could ask you to read a passage about this. The naked statement, a black man has been killed by a white policeman, is such a fearsome divider of the races that the people who preside over a city immediately try to cover it with details. There were causes. There were circumstances. It could be said, for instance, that Joe Hebert had often been in trouble with the law. He was identified in the headlines reporting his death not as a black man, but as a robbery suspect. It could be said that Alan J. Earlywine, the shooter, was a young officer of respectable record who, in nearly four years on the force, had never before fired his revolver off the range. The killing of Joe Hebert, in other words, was not the case of a notoriously sadistic policeman shooting down a patently innocent black man. There were a lot of other causes and circumstances, but when they had all been aired, most of the black people in Seattle still seemed to see the death of Joe Hebert in a way that could be expressed in a simple statement. A black man had been killed by a white policeman. Calvin Trillin, you wrote that in 1975 about Seattle. You could have written it this week about St. Paul or Baton Rouge or a lot of other places in America. Uh, what can we say about that? Well, it, it, things really haven't changed that much, I guess, is one of the things we can say. So uh, this Seattle story from 1975, there was also a very big and long-lasting protest movement around the killing of Joe Hebert by the police in Seattle in 1975. It was called the Justice for Joe Committee. I had never heard of it, and so I Googled the Justice for Joe Committee. Google has a total of three results. There's only three places on the Internet that mention the Justice for Joe Committee. Two were from the Encyclopedia of Anti-Revisionism Online, whose motto is... Apply Marxism-Leninism Mao Zedong thought to problems confronting proletarian revolution in the United States. They discussed the Justice for Joe Committee in an article titled, Is it permissible for the proletariat to ally itself with the liberal bourgeoisie? That's two of the three mentions on the Internet of the Justice for Joe Committee in Seattle in 1975. The only other place on the Internet where the subject appears is Google Books, the text of your new book, Jackson, 1964. Well, of course, Justice for Joe Committee, by the time the Internet came along, was probably disbanded. Um, but not much history was written about them because there, there are these constant incidents, and I... I think uh, you occasionally get one that, that, is, that is so egregious that uh, uh, it's written about a lot, but I think otherwise it's fairly routine. Well, Calvin Trillin, thank you for remembering the life and death of Joe Hebert, killed by the police in Seattle in 1975. The report appears in your new book, Jackson 1964, and other dispatches from 50 years of reporting on race in America. And thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, John. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our recording engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vandenhoevel is editor and publisher of The Nation. 
Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.